Acts 2, 42 through 48. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with the glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Uh, this past week, the uh, New England Patriots uh, NFL professional football team made major news. Uh, if you are not a football fan, uh, the preseason has just come to an end. The regular season starts this next week. I think it kicks off this coming Thursday. And uh, during the preseason, an NFL team is allowed to have 80 uh, men on their roster, 80 players. But for the regular season, you're only allowed to have 53. So most teams use those four weeks of the preseason, uh, camps and games, to evaluate those 80 players. Because they have to decide which 27 they're going to get rid of. Now, some of those 27 that get dropped, they get signed to the practice team. A few others will get picked up by other teams. But some of them, they're, they're just going to go back to working at Walmart. And, and so they have their hopes and their dreams all, all you know, in this. And, and so every team has to make these cuts. But the New England Patriots made major news because of one particular person that they cut. They cut their starting quarterback, Cam Newton. Uh, Cam is a three-time Pro Bowler. In NFL speak, that's an all-star. Uh, he was the 2015 MVP for the entire league. I mean, this guy was a first-round draft pick. He has been a star, been very, very successful. Now, he's probably past his prime, but most people would agree that he still has a lot to give. And so it was shocking when head coach Bill Belichick drops Cam Newton and decides to go with their brand new drafted rookie, Mac Jones, out of Alabama. Well, it surprised everybody except Lewis Riddick. Lewis is an analyst for ESPN. And Lewis posted this on Twitter about head coach Bill Belichick and his decision to drop Cam. Bill does what Bill does. Right or wrong? The man is cold-blooded and will do what he thinks he has to do, period. In other words, Lewis is saying, the New England Patriots is Bill Belichick's team. He's in charge, so he gets to do what he wants to do. This is somewhat common with, with teams, it's common also sometimes with organizations, with institutions. There can be like one personality that just seems to dominate, whether it's because they've been there the longest or, or just because of their position or just because of the way their personality is. It seems to be theirs. So that's why some people call the New England Patriots Bill Belichick's team. It's why some people call the Los Angeles Lakers LeBron James's team. If I ask some of you, well, whose team is the Iowa Hawkeye football team? You, probably a lot of you would say, well, Kirk Ferentz. He's, he's been there the longest. He makes the decisions. It's their team. But this isn't just a sports thing. This happens in business. 
I mean, Jeff Bezos is no longer the CEO of Amazon. He's head of the, the board, but he's no longer CEO. And yet, it, Amazon is still Jeff Bezos' company. Years ago, if you'd said Microsoft, people would have immediately thought Bill Gates. Happens in the nonprofit world or ministry. Some people, you say Samaritan's Purse, all they can see in their head is Franklin Graham. Or even you say, focus on the family. People immediately think, think of James Dobson. Dobson hasn't even been with Focus on the Family for 11 years. And yet it is still seen as his ministry. I mean, this could happen with a college, you know, like a college president who just seems to, you know, have a bigger than life personality. It, it could happen in your workplace, like your boss. It, it, it even happens in church world. Like sometimes you, you name a mega church, people immediately think of their pastor. They'll say, oh, isn't that J.D. Greer's church? Oh, isn't that Matt Chandler's church? But it isn't just a megachurch thing. Like, I suspect, even here in little tiny Waverly, Iowa, that there are people who go, oh, wait, Riverwood, isn't that Aaron Bird's church? Because I'm the pastor, I'm the, the founder, and so they see it as Aaron Bird's church. I don't believe that's God's design for the church. I don't think it's supposed to be Aaron Bird's church. I don't think it's supposed to be John MacArthur's church or Andy Stanley's church. Or I, I don't even think it should be like Matt Townsley's church or Ed Pavlik's church or Luke Anderson's church. Like, this is to be Jesus's church. Today, as we continue in our definition of what is the church and who is the church, we're going to very clearly see that the church is Jesus's. But what I hope happens today isn't that you just walk out with the theological concept that, oh, yeah, the church is Jesus. It's okay, great, we're good. Then instead, you will see that this affects the way we are to view the church. It affects the way we are to do church. And it also affects the way we are to live life. See, my hope and prayer is that as you realize Jesus is over the church, that if you are a follower of Jesus, you realize you're part of the church. So that means Jesus is also head over you which should lead you to come to a place of complete trust and surrender. So if you brought a Bible, I invite you to open it up to Ephesians chapter four, Ephesians four. If you did not bring a Bible, we're going to put the scripture up on the screen. Uh, but if you have a Bible on your phone at Riverwood, we are totally fine with the digital Bible. If you're joining us online, there is a Bible tab. You can go over there and click on that and, uh, and navigate to Ephesians four. If you don't know where Ephesians is, feel free to use the uh, little cheat sheet right there. On the screen, as you're flipping to Ephesians four, uh, just give you a heads up. It's going to be a little bit before we get there, so just hang on to it. The passage that I read at the very beginning was from Acts chapter two. Uh, if you've been with us through this series, you realize that we've been studying that, and I read it at the very beginning of both of the sermons. And spoiler alert: we're going to read it next week at the very beginning of the the uh, message. But we've been looking at Acts two because we've been studying the early church because we feel like at that time. God was working in such a way that there were things that the church was doing, living out, that, that we need to live out. And so two weeks ago, the first thing we saw was that the church is not a building. It's not just an organization. We saw that the church is the people. And not just any collection of people. We saw that it is the redeemed people of God. But then we saw last week that those redeemed people had been given a mission. As, as we launched out from Acts 2, I mean, Acts 2, we went to Matthew 28 and to Acts 1, and we saw that we are called with this mission to go and make disciples in, in Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
But today what we're going to see is that because that mission came from Jesus, he is the head of the church. However, if, if I asked some people, hey, who was the, the head of the, the early church? I think some people would say Peter. I mean, it makes sense. Uh, Peter, after all, is the, the dude that preached the sermon in Acts 2 where 3,000 people come to know Jesus. I mean, so the, the church overnight went from about 120 followers of Jesus to over 3,000. Like overnight, country church to mega church. I can't imagine the, the, the like nightmare that would be in trying to minister to everyone. Yet I wouldn't mind trying it, trying it out. That would be awesome. Also, Peter's the guy in, in Acts chapter 3 who heals a lame beggar. That causes him to get arrested and, and taken before the Sanhedrin. He's the one who ends up talking and, and tells them about Christ. We see him in Acts chapter 5 when an issue comes up with, with Ananias and Sapphira lying. He's the one who's having the conversation with them. Later in Acts 5 when another issue comes up, he's like the, the voice piece. He's the vocal leader. He's the de facto kind of main dude. And yet as important of a leader as Peter was, he was not the head of the church. I also suspect if you ask the people, hey, who, who was the, the head of the early church? Some people might say Paul. Now, Paul did not really come along until later. But because Paul wrote about two-thirds of the New Testament, Paul planted a whole bunch of churches. A lot of people entered into the kingdom of God because of Paul's ministry. Some people might assume that Paul was the, the head dude. As key of a man as he was, as great of a leader. I mean, there are churches named after this guy. I mean, right here in Waverly, St. Paul's Lutheran Church. I mean, the dude was incredible. But he was not the head of the church. We could go on. I mean, throughout time, there's been Augustine. There's been Martin Luther. There have been so many key leaders who God has used in tremendous ways, but not one of them has been the head of the church. The head of the church has always been and will always be Jesus. I think there are four reasons why Jesus is the head of the church. The first reason is that every leader is temporary. I mean, Peter served a, a good amount of time. I mean, he'd hung out with Jesus for a number of years. And yet around Acts 15, we see Peter still kind of leading, but then kind of James, the brother of Jesus, rises up. And after that, it seems that James is kind of now the, the lead dude. Peter, Peter's ministry fades. Or, or you could go on to other times in history. Yeah, some great monumental men, but whether because of retirement or death or whatever, they are no longer leading. Even I, as the founder of Riverwood, am temporary. There will come the day when I am no longer the pastor of this church, and yet I hope the ministry of this church resonates for years to come. All of us are temporary, except Jesus. Jesus has been the head of his church. And as we're going to see today, the language is such, he still is the head of his church. It's his church because everyone else is temporary. Number two, I think Jesus is the head of the church because he's the one who said he was going to start the church. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus makes it very, very clear that this was the plan. He's telling it to his 12 disciples. But what you have to realize is as he's telling his 12 disciples, they're a bunch of good Jewish boys. Like this whole concept of church Kind of made sense. I mean, they gathered in their synagogues, but yet the way Jesus talked, it was different. This was a foreign concept. They did not come up with this themselves. This came from Jesus. And then number three, Jesus gave the mission to the church, or as we saw last week, 
Jesus actually had a mission and created a church to help complete that mission. But also, I think the reason we need to say that Jesus is the head of the church, reason number four, is probably the clearest of all. And that is that the scriptures very, very clearly state it. Take Colossians 1, the first half of 18. And he, referring to Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. Oftentimes when the Apostle Paul writes about the church, he likes this image of a body. Occasionally he uses the imagery of a building. Sometimes he talks about family. But the most common illustration he uses is is a body. Just as Jesus had a physical body when he was on earth, now that Jesus is physically in heaven, he has a spiritual body on earth. And his spiritual body is the church. He is the head, and out of that flows the body. And the body has different parts that do different things, just like hands do different things than feet, and feet do different things than tongues. Like, that's how a body works. And so Paul loved that image, and we're going to see it even more today. But but as we see that Jesus very clearly is the head of the church, we do kind of need to ask ourselves, does, does that mean I should get fired? Like, am I not needed? If Jesus is the head of the church, like, what in the world am I doing? Like, do we need to let go of Matt and Ed and, and Luke as elders? Like, do we need to just disband that team? Because it's, it's redundant. Jesus is the head. We don't need anything else. Do we need to fire Jake and, and Bridget and Lori as our Sunday team? Uh, no, thankfully. <laughs> Paul explains more in Ephesians 4, which hopefully you are open to. He helps us understand why even I am useful for a time. To help you understand the structure of what we're about to read Ephesians 4 starts in in chapter 1 with this just kind of like really deep, rich theological introduction. It's kind of steeped in the gospel. When you get to chapter 2, you see Paul just give this really deep explanation of the gospel. That leads into chapter 3 where he explains why he does what he does because of the gospel. That's his whole entire ministry. All right, so if you want to, think of it this way. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all about the gospel. It's all about Jesus' life, death, resurrection. It's all about him. So then you get to chapter four and now he makes a shift. And in chapter four, it's now like, okay, so because of the gospel we see in one, two, and three, here's how you should therefore live. All right, so pick it up in verse one with me. I therefore, so Paul, he's saying, so therefore, because of all these things I've just said about the gospel, I, a prisoner for the Lord. All right, we'll pause there for a second. By the way, we're gonna pause a lot uh, through this uh, section today. Last week, we dipped into Colossians uh, chapter 4 for just a moment. We saw that Paul was in prison. Uh, Paul was kind of under house arrest in Rome, and he was in prison because of the gospel. And what stood out to us last week was that Paul's in prison because of the gospel, and yet he asks the Colossians to pray that he would have opportunities to share the gospel. Like, the most important thing to Paul was that Jesus loved the world, died on the cross, rose again from the dead. Everyone needed to know this. And so he gave his life to it, even though it landed him in prison. And so here he is still in prison, but he's saying, so because of this ministry that I have for the gospel, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, if you are a Jesus follower, you now know the gospel. It's opened your eyes. It's opened your heart. You now have this relationship with God. So you've now been called to follow Jesus, or as he puts here, to walk And you are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. In other words, when you said yes to following Jesus, you wasn't just to get heaven. It was to have a changed life. 
You're now called to live life differently than how you used to live. If we were to, we're going to end at uh, verse 16 today, but if you head on into verse 17, you'd see Paul talk about what life is like apart from Jesus. So if you are a Jesus follower, then, then you are being called to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And what is that? Verse two, you are to live with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Pause there for a second and look at those two verses. Could you imagine living in a world like that? Imagine a world where people are humble, where people are gentle, where people are patient with your shortcomings, where there is a bearing of one another's burdens because of love. Imagine what your family looks like. Imagine what a church looks like. Imagine what the world looks like. This is why we say that our world desperately needs people who live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. This is what we are called to. We are called to live out this life in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called with humility and gentleness and patience and love and eager to maintain the unity in the spirit. But now what I want you to notice, Paul has just taken chapters one, two, and three to explain the gospel, to talk about his ministry. So now in chapter four, he says, so I therefore am now telling you to live this way. And he can't help but begin to talk about the church. Notice verse four. He says, there is one body. There that, that image is again. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all. And I love this. Who is over all and through all and in all. Some of us, we probably should just like memorize that verse and meditate on it every day. God, the father is over all and through all and in all. But grace, grace is this undeserved gift. This unmerited favor, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Not according to the measure of what you are worth, not according to the measure of what you have done, according to the measure of Christ's gift. And what did Christ do? He died on the cross for our sins. He gave it all for us. He loved us so much. He gave his entire life and he pours it out upon us. That is grace. Therefore, it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. That's a quote from Psalm 68, verse 18. It's this idea that back in the Psalms, a couple thousand years before Jesus ever came to earth, the, the writer was prophesying about Christ, saying that he ascended up and when he ascended, he gave gifts to men. Now, Paul wants to explain this a little more. Verse 9 in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. This idea that, okay, Jesus was in heaven. God, the son came down to earth, incarnated down into human flesh. So he descended to earth. Now, some people say that also when it says the lower regions, it also means he descended down to hell. The idea that after the cross, well, he's still buried in the tomb. His spirit descended down to hell. He took the keys of hell and death. And then he ascended back up to earth and then ascended to heaven 40 days after that. Verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. All right, so Jesus 
dies on the cross for our sins, and he gives us gifts. He's ascended to heaven. Now, many of us, we would say that he's given us the gift of eternal life. And that is true. Some of us would say that he's given us the gift of God's presence. That is also very, very true. Some of us would say that he's given us spiritual gifts. We read about those in like 1 Corinthians 14, and that is also true. But what I want you to notice is the gift that Paul points out. Verse 11. And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. God gave us leaders. He gave these people to the church. An, an apostle is one who, who kind of leads the way into things. The original 12 apostles, that their office is now closed in a sense. But I believe that the spirit of an apostle still lives. I, I think our overseas missionaries, as they head off into new cultures to bring this life-changing gospel, or, or church planters, they, they kind of have this apostolic spirit about them. Prophets. Many of us, when we hear the word prophet, we think, oh, they must like predict the future. Did you know that most prophecy is really what they call foretelling, not just foretelling? It's where they say, hey, here's how you're living. This isn't right. You need to bring correction to this. They're, they're there to help guide you and bring you back. It's this form of protection. Evangelists, they're always sharing the good news. They want people who don't know Jesus to find him and follow him. It's a big part of our ministry here at Riverwood. It's why God started this church. He didn't start this just to take a bunch of Christians from other churches and have a nice little happy club. He's given us a mission to go and make disciples. And so if you are not a follower of Jesus, whether you're online or you're here in person, we're glad you're here. We started this church for you. And so we want you to know this life-changing gospel. We're not going to twist your arm. We, we think the gospel is so beautiful, so true. We do not have to like oversell it. We're going to just give it to you and let you decide, is it true? And if it's true, we're going to ask you, give your life to Jesus because it changes everything. Then it also says that God gives us shepherds and teachers. The word shepherd, many translations have pastors. A slight controversy. Some people think this is one role, a pastor teacher. It's like a slash because, you know, I'm the pastor of Riverwood. And yet most Sundays I'm up here teaching. Some people think that they're split, though. That, that there's a role to be a pastor, to shepherd, and then there's other people who teach. And you could be a, a good teacher, but maybe not a great shepherd. Likewise, maybe you're really good at caring for people and shepherding them and protecting them, but you're not so dynamic at, at teaching. We're not going to get into the debate today. What I want you to realize is that God loves the church so much, Jesus doesn't just give us the forgiveness of our sins. He also gives us leaders. But the error we so often make is we then assume that those leaders are to do the ministry. Instead, notice verse 12. It says that Jesus gives these apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The word saint there does not mean super Christian. It does not mean someone who's died and like risen up in some sort of spiritual hierarchy later. No, when Paul uses the word saint, he means a Jesus follower. So if you've given your life to Christ, you're a saint. I realize that maybe this last week, some of the decisions you made, some of the thoughts you had, you'd be going, uh, not sure I would use that word, Aaron. That's okay. God uses the word. He sees that he's forgiven you. He sees who you will be. He sees what you, you will be like when you are in his heavenly realm 
at the end of time. You are a saint. And he wants to equip you for the work of the ministry. And so he gives us these leaders basically to launch us to go and do the ministry, to do what God's called us to do. Now, do you see why we're doing volunteer roundup? This isn't about us just trying to get a bunch of volunteers so we can you know, do what we want. No, this is about you taking what God's put in you and you giving it. But notice the next part of verse uh, 12. It's for the building up of the body of Christ. It isn't just about trying to get the attention. No, you do the ministry in order to bless others, to build up the body. If you are a follower of Jesus, you're part of that redeemed people of God. And that means you're now, your life is to be like Christ who gave his life for others. And so you were to give your life to help others. And by doing so, it builds up the body. And notice we are to do this. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood. Don't be confused by there. It's basically personhood, adulthood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is quite the sentence. It's not very smooth. I'm using the English standard version today. It's not very smooth. I'll just put it this way. Basically what he's saying there is that we all need to become like Jesus. The way we put it at Riverwood is we are to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. That is what we are to do. These leaders, they're there here temporarily to try to help you become more like Jesus. So that you will go and live with humility and gentleness and patience and bear with one another in love. Verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We're going to come back and talk about that verse here a little later. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him. Here it is again. Who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If you are a follower of Jesus, you're part of the redeemed people of God. But that means you're now part of the body and we find our fulfillment in Christ. So often we go to church for what we can get from it. We go to a church based on what we like about it. And yet Paul is saying here, no, the church is to be all about Jesus. It finds everything from him and through him. That is why if we were to say we were a team, we're Jesus's team. If we were a business, this would be Jesus's business. But we are a church and we are Jesus's church. This is why at Riverwood, we talk about being a Jesus centered church. I was very concerned about using language like that because I thought it would make people think that we denied the Trinity. Just the opposite. We are very Trinitarian in our theology. We believe there is one God revealed in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But the reason we say we are a Jesus-centered church trying to help people lead, lead Jesus-centered lives is because of things like Ephesians 4. It's all about Jesus. It all flows from him. He's the head of the church. He's the one who started it. He's the one who gave the mission to it. 
Everything finds its fulfillment in him. And I believe that the more you focus on Christ, the more you begin to see and appreciate the father. I mean, Jesus said, when you've seen me, you see the father. So by looking at Jesus, we actually see the father. And I think we worship the father more purely, more accurately by looking at Jesus. Also, we don't forget the Holy Spirit. I think that by looking at Jesus, we realize that it's the Holy Spirit who raised him from the dead. And now the same power that raised Christ from the dead now dwells in us. And so we begin to have a better understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and what he wants to do in us and through us. So the church is to be all about Jesus. Which means that we each individually are to be all about Jesus. But before I get to each of us individually, let's let's just talk about us corporately. If Jesus is the head of the church, that means that he's the, the Bill Belichick of it all. Which means that if he wants to cut the starting quarterback, we got to trust him. We have to trust that he knows what he's doing. As a fairly new church, seven and a half years old, we have had to basically trust God through a lot some, some of you, not a ton of you, but some of you were with us in some of those early days. There were some days where we wondered, is anyone going to show up? We actually had to trust God. We believed that he had called us to this mission. But then like Sunday rolls around and is, is, is anyone going to even actually show up? We had to trust that God would provide the, the leaders, the, the volunteers to, to help us make disciples. <laughs> some weeks we had to trust that God would even just provide a place for us to meet. And, and then we've had to trust God to provide for us financially. The thing is, though, even though we're no longer a baby church, we still have to trust God. Like right, right now, almost every church is really having to trust God through this pandemic. You guys, it is hard to lead through this thing. It feels like any decision you make is going to disappoint someone. And yet, it's to be about Jesus. So guess what we're trying to do here? What can we do to help the greatest number of people connect with Christ? Also, we we still have to trust him financially. God, in his providence, put this building on our radar way before a pandemic ever came. We brought it to our partners, and our partners in February of 2020 voted unanimously to take this on. And a month later, we couldn't meet. It delayed everything. And then you throw on top of it, I had a two-month sabbatical. And so a lot of this ended up falling on many of you. We had to trust God through it all. And I suspect that we're going to have to trust God next year. And in five years. And in ten years. And in every year. But I think that's actually the best place for us. Because Jesus is our head. And as we trust him... He will do what he needs to do, what he wants to do for his glory, for our joy, and for the blessing of our community. But you know, the things that we've gone through are small compared to what some churches have gone through. Right now, there are churches that cannot meet because they are in a closed country. Whether it's because they are in a Muslim nation, 
a, a communistic country. Maybe they're underneath an atheistic regime. And for whatever reason, the name of Jesus is threatening. And so if, if a group tried to gather like this, there would be authorities who would crash in and they would arrest them. Many of them would be beaten and some of them even killed. Open Doors USA runs a web, uh, uh, a list, I guess you could call it, that they call the watch list. Uh, according to them, just so far in 2021, 4,761 Christians have been killed for their faith. So far in 2021, 4,488 church buildings or Christian-related buildings have been attacked. Uh, uh, so far in 2021, 4,277 believers have been detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. And currently, there are over 340 million Christians living in places where they experience high levels of persecution. And as I joked last week, that is not the checker at uh, uh, Target not being willing to say Merry Christmas. We're talking true persecution. One of those 340 million Christians is a guy by the name of Hamed Ashuri. Hamed is 31 years old, grew up in Iran as a Muslim. I don't know his entire story, but somehow he came to realize that Jesus is real. That there's one God revealed in three persons. The second one, God the Son, came to earth, died on the cross for Hamed's sins, and rose again from the dead, and is now called Hamed to follow him. And so Hamed has given his life to this. But the secret police of Iran started figuring out that Ahmed was no longer a Muslim, that he was a Christian. And so they raided his home and they found a Bible and Christian literature on his laptop. And so in 2019, he was arrested and detained. He was released as the trial began to get going. The pandemic in 2020 kind of threw things for a wrench. But finally here in 2021, he has been convicted. And he just began in July, a 10-month sentence. Simply for owning a Bible. Simply for being a Christian. The prison he got sent to is known as Central Prison. It is one of the most notorious prisons in the world for their human rights violations. It was built to hold 200 inmates, and it currently has over 700. They currently have about one-fourth of the food that they should have. And every day for roughly four hours, the water gets turned off. The place is horribly unsanitary. And this is where Hamed, our brother in Christ, got put. And yet, as Ahmed knew what was coming, what was going to happen, he made a video. And in his video, he said this. I thank God for considering me worthy of enduring this persecution because of him. How? How in the world do you know you're going to get thrown into something like that? You're going to be beat simply because you proclaim the name of Jesus. And you say, I think God. I'll be honest. I have matured a lot in my faith. I don't know that I'm quite there yet. I, I, I wouldn't deny Jesus. I, he was being coerced to try to, to become a secret spy to expose other Christians. He refused. I, I would probably do that. I, I don't know though yet that I would just be able to say, I thank God I get to be persecuted. I thank God. How? How do you get there? Because I'll be honest, I want to be there. And I want you to be there. I'll tell you how. 
Trust. See, Hamed knows that when he gave his life to Christ, he joined the redeemed people of God. And because he's now part of the redeemed people of God, he is under the headship of Jesus. And not just for the global church, he individually is under Jesus. And so if his God says, Ahmed, I want you to go through this. Okay, I'll go through this. And God, I thank you. Maybe Ahmed thinks that there's some people in prison who he's going to share the gospel with and they're going to come to know Jesus. Maybe something about his story is going to resonate so that some church in Waverly, Iowa will hear his story and be moved to draw closer to Christ. But I'm too much like verse 14. Remember the verse we read but kind of skipped? In verse 14, Paul talks about how we're not to be children any longer. And then he uses this image of being tossed to and fro by waves. Now, he's talking about doctrine, worldview, cultures. And if you haven't noticed, yeah, we can get knocked around by worldviews. Like our culture, things in the, the media, things out in, in our entertainment, you know, they, they'll say certain things and, and this is what we need to believe. And yeah, I, I will admit, early in my life, I get knocked around by that. Well, okay, that, that actually sounds good. That sounds reasonable. Or, oh, well, okay, maybe it's actually this. And I just kind of got bounced around. But the more that I've started following Christ, the more settled I've gotten. And so now I, I'm not as prone to just buy into something. However, I'm still a little too much tossed around in my emotions. I am still too tossed around by the waves of my circumstances. I, I, I'm tossed around when I have a physical ailment. Or I feel like there's a relationship that's somewhere strained. Like there's too many things in my life that just knock me around. How, how do you get steady? How do you get that peace? How do you have that rock solid anchor so that you could be like Ahmed and say, I thank God for this. Paul tells us in the previous verse. Verse 13, this happens when we attain to the unity of the faith, when we have knowledge of the Son of God, when we mature into full manhood, adulthood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, the way that you get to that place of peace, the way you get to that place of being steady, the way you can navigate through all the winds of culture, through all of your circumstances, through all of it, is Jesus To become like Jesus means you have to look at Jesus. You have to continue to peer at him. You continue to study the gospel. You continue to understand what it meant for Jesus to go to the cross, to die our sin, but to rise again from the dead, and what it now means for our life. And so, yes, I, I hope you walk out today with the theological truth that Jesus is the head of the church. But it also means that if you are a follower of Jesus, you're part of that church. And that means Jesus is your head. And so what do you need to trust him with? Is there something that you have not been trusting God with? Something that you've been holding on to? Is there something that happened in your past? That you've been holding against God? Is there something coming up in the future that you don't know what is going to happen? And you're living in fear. Today, I want you to hear, trust Jesus. L lay it all out before him. So as we move into our time of communion, that's what I'm going to invite you to do. Is to just give it to him. As you take that uh, cup, 
and you, you take the, the bread, you realize that's Jesus' body, which was broken for you. As you rip off the, the top and you, and you get to the, the, the juice, you realize that's Jesus' blood, which was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And when you see what he did for you, you see his love for you, let it help you to trust him. I don't know why he let that happen in your life. I don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. I don't know why he's allowed that physical ailment or that strained relationship. I'm not here today to try to explain these things away. What I am here today, though, is to say you can trust him. You can trust him like Ahmed trusts him. You can trust him because he's good. You can trust him because he loves you. And you can trust that he is at work even when you can't see it. So may these next moments be one of surrender. May they, may, may they be one of just a, a giving. May, may it be one of just placing all of yourself in his hands. Saying, God, take me, use me, do what you need to. Help me to trust you through all of this. So in a moment, I'm going to pray. After I pray, Jake and the band are going to lead us in a song. We've n- never done this song here at Riverwood, so none of you are going to know it. So I'm going to just encourage you to listen, to let the words become your prayer. That as you hear the words of the chorus, as you hear the words of the verse, you would express the idea behind the song. That you would lay all of it, all of your plans, all of your life, all of yourself in God's hands. At any time during the song, you are free to get up and go to the communion elements. You're free to remain right where you're at. You're free to stand. If you start catching on to the song to sing, you're free to get on your knees. You're free to stay where you're at. Whatever you need to do right now, do. Because this is about you connecting with a God who loves you and wants you to trust him. So Heavenly Father, I pray that you administer in this next moment. Lord, whatever people are dealing with, I pray that they would just begin to hand it over to you. Lord, I I pray for the person that does not know you, has never given their life to you. That instead of trying to go and get some communion elements, that instead they would give their life to you. That they would receive your offer of grace. That, That what you did through the cross, they would realize was for them. And they would make the same decision that Hamed made. And they would make the same decision that so many others of us have made. That they would give their life to you because of who you are, Jesus, and what you've done. God, I pray that today would be their spiritual birthday. And the first thing that they give to you, the first thing that they entrust to you, is themselves. But Lord, I pray for the followers of Jesus here. Those who are already part of the redeemed people of God. That whatever fears and worries they are carrying, no matter what, what uh, pain they're holding on to, whatever has happened in their past, whatever they might be ha- holding on to, God, I pray that today would be a day of releasing, of, of giving up, of surrender, of trust. And that they would actually be able to say, God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you 
for what you are doing. And I trust you, Jesus, because you are my leader. You are my savior. You are the head of the church and you are the head of my life. So Holy Spirit, do what you need to now for your glory, for our freedom. We do this now in remembrance of Christ who went to the cross for us. And it's in his name we pray.